0: Stephanie read to us from Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3. In this stretch of the creation account, we see that God creates Eve from Adam's rib. And he brings her to Eve. Now That's, that's important. This idea that God presents Eve as a gift to Adam And Adam as a gift to Eve. That was their birthday present. He gives them as gifts to one another. Now as God presents them to one another as a gift. Notice what it says in Genesis chapter 2 verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. In this gift of Adam to Eve and of Eve to Adam. This gift of God. To these two, they are fully present to one another. Fully exposed, unafraid, unashamed, able to offer themselves to each other completely. Without any reservation. Without holding anything back. They are completely giving themselves to each other personally and physically. Now this is the foundation... Of sexual relationships. The lifelong covenant of one man and one woman in marriage. Is the creator's design for sexual relationship. And sex between a husband and a wife. It is designed to seal this relationship. To transform it into a one flesh union. Notice verse 24, Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and what is the effect of this? They shall become one, one flesh. Sex is designed to fit within the context of a comprehensive, lifelong union, a comprehensive and permanent union. Union. It's designed as a way for a husband and a wife to make a gift, not just of their bodies, but of themselves to one another. And it establishes this deep union. Now notice Christianity here at the very beginning in Scripture rejects this view that has been lurking around Western culture For thousands of years. The idea that your body is a husk. And the essence of you is different. It's within your body. It's a kernel. The Bible does not have this bifold view of human beings. It has a deep unified view of what it means to be a human. It recognizes what we all know. Kill the body, kill the person. Birth a body, birth a person. That you can't separate. A soul and a body. When you do, the person is deeply diminished. And the only way we can refer to that in our culture is something like a ghost. Something that isn't all that it should be. Your body is not just a husk in which your soul, your essence is housed. Your body is the place of your personal presence in the world. You cannot separate your body from your true self. You cannot do things with your body and say that's not the real you. You are what you do with your body. What you do with your body, it is an An effect of your soul. So the husband's body is God's gift to his wife. And the wife's body is God's gift to her husband. And sex is a fundamental way that this gift is given and received by giving their bodies to one another. A husband and a wife give themselves to one another. And it is so total and so complete that the only way to summarize it is to say it is one flesh. This new thing, this new entity is made. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become, as a result of this, one flesh. Sex is the sign and the symbol and the seal of the husband giving himself totally and completely without reserve to his wife. And it is the sign and the symbol and the seal of the wife receiving her husband completely and totally and reciprocating by giving herself completely and totally without reserve and the wife receiving it. It is this mutual, complex, comprehensive giving and receiving. You see, sex is not just a physical thing. It is a holistic personal connection and communion. Sex is the total gift of yourself of yourself, to your spouse. God has given a husband and a wife bodies so that through sex they can make a comprehensive gift of themselves to each other. But that is not how sex is in our world. As we keep reading in the biblical account of creation, the very next thing that happens is sin. Adam and Eve rebel against God and we call this the fall the fall because what they do is not some momentary lapse in judgment it is catastrophic and it is comprehensive and as a result of this moment a barrier is erected in human history everything after this moment is changed The effects of this rebellion are catastrophic. They are comprehensive. Notice how sin erects a barrier just by comparing chapter 2 verse 25 with chapter 3 verse 7. In chapter 2 verse 25, here we see life before the barrier. Life in the beginning. Sex in the beginning. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. That's Genesis 2.25. But after the barrier, after they crossed the threshold of sin, Genesis 3, 7, the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloth. Everything has changed. We live in a different moment than Adam and Eve lived in before the fall. A barrier, a threshold. Now as you continue to read the biblical account of reality, you will see that the primary consequences of sin are two. Number one, our minds are broken. And number two, our hearts are broken. Now this comes up throughout the Bible. Neither our minds nor our hearts can be trusted any longer to be guides to truth as a result of the fall. The effects of sin on the world has generated errors in our way of thinking and wrong desires. Our minds don't recognize the truth and our hearts are idol factories. We are incarcerated in a prison of ignorance and we are tortured and twisted and distorted by desires that are deceptive, illicit, and destructive. These are the two primary ways that the fall strikes us from the moment we are conceived. Now, so even though our sexuality was designed by God in creation, it was broken in the fall. In fact, few of the good gifts of God are more thoroughly desiccated then our broken minds and our broken bodies have broken our sexuality. Our disordered minds, our disordered desires, disorder our lives. Sex was created by God, but now it's broken. And this brokenness works its way out in three primary ways. Our broken minds, our broken hearts, do three primary distortions to us when it comes to sex. Three fundamental ways that our culture has got to stop talking about sexual orientation and start talking about a comprehensive sexual disorientation that we all share, that we are all born with. Number one, our sexual disorientation causes us to lust, to reduce people to objects. Look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. Here Jesus gets at the heart of what we often mean when, when in the church we talk about this negative thing called lust. Genesis, I mean Matthew chapter 5 verse 27. You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman... If you write in your Bible, this, this is the heart of it. You can underline these three words. With lustful intent. Has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus is talking about the, not noticing beauty. Not recognizing a lovely form of beauty. He is talking about your intent. In your notice. He's talking about the way we use our imaginations to dehumanize people, to reduce a person to a body. You cannot divide your body from who you are, but you cannot also reduce who you are to your body. And at the heart of lust is reduction. It is reducing someone to an object. In married erotic lovemaking, the focus is on the face. The focus is on the eyes. The focus is on the body representing the whole person. But in pornography, bodies get dismembered. And the focus no longer is on the person. The focus is on the objects that can serve my satisfaction. In lust, we reduce people to objects of our sexual satisfaction. We rob the person of their personhood. We, we steal them. We capture them. We make them prisoners. We take away their freedom. It is no longer a person in freedom giving themselves to me. It is no longer my wife in her absolute autonomous freedom offering herself to me. Now I've taken someone and you can do this with your wife. Whoever looks at a woman, not a woman they're not married to, it it, it doesn't matter if you're looking at your wife this way. Wives, it doesn't matter if you're looking at your husbands this way. When you look at someone and you take, and you reduce them to this object that is completely under the control of your own fantasy to satisfy your own desire, you are isolating sexual pleasure, trying to get sexual pleasure by itself out of the lifelong commitment of marriage, away from this other person, you're experiencing one of the primary brokennesses of sex. You're reducing the other person to a body to use for your own purpose. Now, a second way that our broken minds and our broken hearts twist and deform our sex drives is when we love and desire someone too much or too little. When our love is either excessive or insufficient. When our desire is out of order. Either direction. Look again at Matthew chapter 22. This passage that I read to us just a few minutes ago. What is the greatest commandment? Jesus says in verse 37... Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. One of the serious effects of the fall is that our loves are all screwed up. We love things we should more than we should. We love things we should less than we should. Our loves, our desires are disordered. Everything God created is worthy of love. And and this is a bit tricky. I don't really know how to fully explain this because I'm not sure you can love a person too much. But you love them disordered if you don't love God radically more. It's not so much that we love people too much. It's that we love them in the wrong order. Everything God created is worthy of love, but we will only be satisfied and only be truly happy if we love God and people and animals and places and things the way God and people and animals and places and things should be loved. Nothing but frustration lies in front of you if you get your loves out of order. Happy is the person who comprehends and loves all things in their proper way, in their proper place. But when we fail to make God the highest priority in our lives, we so easily become obsessed with a variety of precious objects. That's what Tolkien is doing with Gollum. Gollum was a hobbit. But because he loves something in the wrong way, by the time he's done, you can no longer recognize him. If your loves are out of order, you will be dehumanized. If your passions are out of order, it will twist you. It will corrupt you. When you look at someone or something to do for you what only God can do for you. When you love an animal more than humans. When you love people and you never think about creation. When your loves are all mixed up, then you will make a person or place. Or an animal into a god. And since people and places and animals and things are ultimately not gods. They will become demons. And they will destroy you. Turn something that is not a god into a god. And it will become your own demon. And it will destroy you. So our broken minds and our broken hearts disorient us sexually. We are all sexually disoriented. We lust, we turn people into objects, we love and desire some too much and some too little. Thirdly, our sexual disorientation is on display when we desire someone or something that we should not desire. The third way that our broken minds and our broken hearts deform our sex drives is when we love and desire the wrong person see it's possible to desire the whole person and to love them in a way that is not excessive and not insufficient and yet it is possible for that person whom you love totally to be wrong it is possible to desire someone sexually you should not desire Remember as a result of the fall, neither our minds nor our hearts are trustworthy guides to the truth. Our minds don't recognize the truth and our hearts produce idols. And so we're incarcerated in ignorance. We're imprisoned by desires that are deceptive and destructive. Sometimes we have sexual desires for someone and something that we should not. And if we get it, if we get that person, they will destroy us. That love, that passion, that desire will destroy us. You cannot find true happiness if what you love and what you desire is ultimately destructive. It is possible to love someone you should not love in that way. There's a significant part of what, this is a significant part of what was going on in the passage that Ben read to us. Look at Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Now here is the essence of our sinful nature. We don't love God. We don't honor Him enough. We don't put Him in the central place of our life. We don't recognize how every aspect of our life must be related to Him. And when we, and when our love for God is not as it should be, when it is not the highest love of our life, when it is not the blazing passionate center of our life, when God is Is not our most passionate love. Then notice what happens. The rest of verse 21. They become futile in their thinking. And their hearts were darkened. Do you see it there? The two primary effects of the fall. Broken minds and broken hearts. Dark thoughts. Things we think are right. Things we think are true. Things we think are logical. They are not. We believe they are. Our whole society says there are. But we're all wrong. And our hearts are twisted. Darkened. So here we see these two primary effects. Now, how does this affect us sexually? Well, in two ways. I've already talked about lust and disordered desires. But notice a third way here in verse 26. For this reason, because our minds think things that are wrong. We think they're right, but they're wrong. And because our hearts have desires that they should not have. Notice, for that reason... God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God allows us to embrace these fit th- thoughts and these desires. And what does he call them? Dishonorable, wrong, illicit, out of, out of bounds. And then he just names one homosexuality. Now, he's not saying here that homosexual behavior is the worst sin. He's saying here it is a very good example of wrong thinking and wrong desires. The women exchanged natural relations for those that were contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations for women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Now, look... If you struggle with homosexual desires, don't make more of this. I've just picked on everybody else for lusting and for loving and and desiring in ways they should and shouldn't. We all fall under the searching, piercing, life-challenging scripture. And don't say, well, this challenges my very nature. It challenges everybody's very nature. Everybody is sexually disoriented. Everybody lusts. Everybody loves and desires inordinately, excessively and insufficiently. And homosexuality is one of these categories. Now, I'm not going to talk any more about that. Today, In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to spend a whole sermon dealing with this very complex issue of same-sex desires. It's very complicated. It's very complex. But what we're focusing on this morning is that there are sexual desires that are simply wrong. They are dishonorable passions. Do you see that the Christian view of desire and love challenges the naive view that love in general... And sexual love in particular is always good. Or that prevent... It, it, it challenges this notion that if you prevent someone from expressing their desire, from, it, from getting what they so deeply long for, then you are in some way inhibiting them or trapping them in an unfulfilled existence. We should all have an unfulfilled existence. Because we all live on this side of the fall. We all have longings that we must not fulfill. There are moments when I have wanted things that if I fulfilled them, I would be in prison. Rightly so. This side of the barrier, this side of the threshold, a lack of fulfillment is fundamental to what it means to be human it is possible to desire someone as a person it is possible to desire a house that you should not give yourself into longing for so much that you eventually commit a crime in order to get it you, you it is possible to desire a person To desire to give yourself to someone completely and entirely, and yet it is a transgression of a boundary. If my neighbor's wife, if I fall in love with her and long to give myself to her completely and entirely, not excessively and not insufficiently, it is still wrong. It's illegitimate, it's dishonorable. One of the common objections to the Christian teaching on sex is that we should not repress what is natural. We absolutely should repress what is natural. If by natural you mean any thought that comes into your heart, really, do we as a society really believe we should not repress people's deep desires? Do you believe that about everybody? Or just about people in your socioeconomic category? It's an illogical thought. It's a mistake to think that what comes natural to us is what should be. Ever since sin entered the world, our sexual desires, our sexual inclinations have been disoriented. We reduce people to objects for our sexual pleasure. We have sexual desires for people that are too excessive or too, too shallow. We, fulfill, we have sexual desires for people we shouldn't. Now, thank goodness that's not the end of the story. At the heart of Christianity is the good news that Jesus Christ, through his words and his deeds, has brought God's kingdom here to this world that we live in. And by doing that, Jesus Christ defeats the powers of evil. And he averts God's anger toward our sexual sins. And he offers us freedom from our broken minds and our twisted hearts. He offers us healing of our thoughts and our hearts. This part of us that flows out into all of our brokenness. He offers us freedom from slavery to sin, to Satan, to death. He offers us forgiveness for all of our sexual sins. He offers us the gift of righteousness and friendship with God. We can be saved sexually. We can be saved from our sexual disorientations. How? By grace through faith in Christ. And we express this faith publicly in baptism. And we become involved in the church as we seek to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And if we yield to God in Christ, he will save us. And he will give us an eternal destination with God in the new heavens and the new earth. But I hope you've been around our church long enough to know that life in the new heavens and the new earth is the icing. Because he he does more than hold out something on the other side of death. He holds out to us healing and salvation Now, real life, real healing, now, this side of death. As believers, we can experience the life of Jesus Christ, eternal life, that quality of shalom and flourishing. Now, but conversion, getting saved... Doesn't do it. Salvation does not heal your mind. And salvation does not heal your heart. Becoming a Christian doesn't make us mature. It doesn't take away from us bad thinking and disordered affections. We must allow Jesus to to reprogram the way we think. We must allow Jesus sovereignty over what is right and what is wrong. We must allow Jesus to straighten out the affections of our heart. And it is not something that happens in conversion. And it is not something that happens in deliverance. The evangelicals and the Pentecostals are both wrong. You can't get saved into maturity and you cannot get delivered into maturity. Both are important. But all they do is open the gates so that you can run the Kentucky Derby of discipleship. All they do is make you free to become mature. They do not make you mature. So Jesus offers the gift of graciously reordering our lives into health and wholeness. How? By the long hard work of reordering our thoughts and reordering our affections. Now, I've only got time to give one example. I hope next week to go on from here. But I've only got time to talk about one way that I think we, as a church, need to change our thinking. I'm not going to pick on other churches. I'm talking about incarnation. There are ways that we need to talk about changing our affections. But I want to take time on one thought we're wrong about. That we must allow God to change. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans chapter 12 verse 1. I appeal to you brothers by the mercies of God. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God. Which is your spiritual act of worship. Do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind. He is talking to Christians. And he says they have wrong thoughts. They need their minds changed. Notice conversion did not straighten out their thoughts. Joining a church doesn't straighten out your thoughts. Now. One of the fundamental ways in which our minds think wrongly is that in our society and in our churches we believe that sex is required for human flourishing. It is not. Americans are obsessed with self-fulfillment. And one of the most prevalent and most basic beliefs in our society is a belief that is, it, that is so basic that it carries the weight of a self-evident truth. We all just assume it's true. It just feels logical. And it's the idea that sex is, a, is essential to human flourishing. But that idea is not logical. It comes largely from the work of Sigmund Freud and Abraham Maslow. The idea that sex is a psychological and physiological need that is essential to human flourishing is an invention of relatively recent psychology. The idea that people fulfill or actualize themselves through sex and everyone must have sex in order to be whole is wrong. And one of the basic contentions of the Bible, I'll show you in a minute how this is actually in our church. One of the basic contentions of the Bible, and this gets lots of press in the New Testament, is that our human flourishing is not found through marriage. It is not found through the families that marriage produces. Human flourishing is found when we bear one another's burdens in love in church. Now, unfortunately, Protestant churches are very messed up on this issue. And evangelicals are the worst. The way we talk about sex, going on and on about how great it is. The way we lift up marriage and the family and all of this... implicitly conveys the idea that one day teenagers one day children you can get this too do you see how our idolatrous exaltation of the family puts some people in the untenable position of not being whole not to mention the way we carden off singles into this ridiculous invention called singles ministry and singles groups so that they will hopefully get over their hurts and get married (laughs) all of this implies sex is a need and then after all of this idolatrous talk about the family and about sex we expect teenagers and young adults to live some of the most sexually charged years of their lives without getting to fulfill a basic need You see how our it's all circled back on us. No wonder people struggle to say sexually pure. We're telling them, just wait, just wait, just wait. One day you can do what you were made to do. And the subtle undercurrent there is until then, hold on tight. No other people struggle to say sexually pure. Either sex is essential to human flourishing or it isn't. And if everyone who is married thinks that it is, then unmarried people will too, regardless of what we say about holiness. See, we're saying be holy, but you need this in order to be whole. And these are cross currents. Singles who live lives of sexual abstinence have a crucial role place in the church they have a crucial role in the way we form people sexually look in the bible the two greatest heroes of the new testament Jesus and Paul whole or not fulfilled or not legitimate lifestyle or not the two greatest heroes in the new testament were single Why are the greatest heroes in our church not? Do you know that for many centuries, the default mode of Christianity was singleness, not marriage. Be single, but I guess some of you have to get married. See, we say the opposite. Get married. I guess some of you are stuck. In the Bible, we see that there are many legitimate reasons People do not get married. Some of them are completely out of the person's control and some of them are not. And either way, the message of the Bible is that you can serve God single or married. In fact, as we study the Bible, we see that marriage and singleness are two sides of a whole coin that we need as people and as a church. Marriage and singleness are both necessary to a healthy community. They are both vocations, each a worthy form of life. And together, they give a whole witness. And either by themselves, give an insufficient witness. Parents, think about how wrong you are with your kids when the only message they get from you is one day you too can be married. You need to say at least as much. One day you might be single. And it should be a smile on your face, not a declension. One day, you might have children. One day, you might get to be single. You might get to be married. I wonder what vocation you are going to have. And it might be in your power. It might be out of your power. But whichever you are called to, you will flourish. And you will be a witness to God and to his kingdom. Parents, do you see how our thinking is wrong? And we are damning some of our children. To an insufferable life because of the way we assume marriage and family is the default mode and the implication is everything else is to be suffered well if you think marriage isn't something to be suffered you haven't been married I mean other than me I only know this from your marriages not my own <laughs> turn this way Look, everybody is called to singleness for large gaps of your life. Right? My children must, I must have the sense that they can be whole. They're not little people waiting to get married. They are whole people unmarried. And you know what? Nine out of ten times, even if you get married, you will be called to singleness again. Unless you're one of those people that are riding a motorcycle and you both go at the same time. (laughs) Singleness is a vocation we all are called to. Some for seasons, and some for a long time. Now, now those of you, look, it's very different, I know, to be thinking like this for an 18-year-old than it is for a 48-year-old. I know that singleness can cause deep pain, but listen to me. Marriage does too. There is no vocation apart from the cross. The answer to a painful marriage is not Divorce, And the answer to painful singleness is not marriage. It is learning to embrace your vocation. And some of the profound sexual brokenness is because we're wrong in our thinking. And we think only through that level of physical intimacy can I be all that I can be. Church, we talk a lot about how to find a spouse. Do we talk enough about how to discern the call to singleness? Are we good as a church at helping people discern and embrace the call to marriage and the call to singleness? In our churches, we have lots of emphasis on supporting families. Do we have structures and systems of support for singles that are adequate to the nature of their vocation? When there is, in any church, an absence of visible, lifetime, lifelong singles, then that church is diminished in its witness and it is diminished in its ability to execute sexual formation of young people. When there in a church an absence of visible, lifetime singles, then we have lost one of our main ways of witnessing to our culture. Against its sexual idolatry. I am so thankful for the mature, faithful, godly singles in our church. For Michelle and for Bob and for CJ and for Stephanie. We need them and we need more of them. And we need to learn how, in our small groups, to give them a break. To stop harming them in the very ways that all the husbands and wives are always cuddled up next to each other on the couch. It is a critical call to our church to recognize sex is not required for you to be who God has called you to be. Our sexual brokenness, it makes us lust. It disorders our loves. It leads us to desire those we shouldn't. But Jesus Christ is the answer. If you are spiritually hungry and looking for food and drink, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. If you are in darkness and you need illumination, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. If you are confused and you can't find the door out of the place you are in, Jesus said, I am the door. If you're alone and fearful and needy and you need to cry out for provision and you are scared and you need protection, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I will lay my life down for you. If you are scared of death and you long for life, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, he will Live again. If you have lost your bearings and you need to know the way, Jesus says, I am the way. If you feel useless and you need to be fruitful, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Christ, Christ Jesus, He alone can make us whole. Not sex. Let's pray.